Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Holly Whitaker. Holly, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Glad to have you here. And I, I invited you here because you wrote a book called Quit Like a Woman, The Radical Choice Not to Drink in a Culture Obsessed with Alcohol. And I checked today. Do you know how many ratings? you? I, my, I was really happy when my book got over 100 reviews. Yeah. Do you know how many yours has? Yeah, it has uh, like 7,000. Yeah, it's 7,092. It's probably more by now. Yeah. And uh, it's really uh, a very engaging book. Uh, so very brief words about you for people who don't know. Uh, Holly Whitaker is, a, is the founder and CEO of Tempest. With years of experience in the fields of healthcare and tech, she created an, individu- an individualized recovery program in 2014 through a virtual platform that offers education, community, and support services. She lives in Brooklyn with her cat, Mary Catherine. And I brought you because, now some people might say, wait, what, what does alcohol do with, but hopefully they've caught on that. I talk a lot about addiction. And what I came across most in reading your book or actually listening to your book was, this is a long list, the joy and freedom of someone who kicked a habit that was bringing her down liberation of seeing how much it told her it was helping her when it wasn't mm-hmm. rage and fury at culture and, and the forces perpetuating this benefiting from benefiting from keeping her down enthusiasm to share and bring people along empowerment and also a sense of i mean um, this is really how i feel also toward kicking my the thing the, the the i call it an addiction to what i got from fossil fuels or from the things that polluted so there's a wonder why people don't get it or don't want to, or people kind of protect themselves from seeing it, but a desire to help, but also recognizing that people need to take the first step or you can't just force it on people. Mm-hmm. And I see, it looks to me like you've created a tribe of people like you and that I see that you made it more through curiosity. I'm not sure exactly how to put it, what, what drove you through it, but it wasn't dogma. And which it may have, the dogma may have helped others, but it's, it was counterproductive for, for you, I, I saw. And I read you more than anything else as having fun, like what you describe of your life now and how you looked at it before and how much before you would have looked at it like, I don't know, square. And now it's like you talk about how much life there is. I, don't, I can't put it better than your words. And I, I encourage people to read your book because it's so to me, engaging and um, thrilling, fun, also enraging. I, that's what brought me here. or br- That's what led me to bring you here. Okay. Have I captured it effectively? I, what was it like from your side? Sure. I mean, you, anyway, you, I mean, a book, when a book goes out into the world, it's no longer yours. Right. And I think like how a reader interacts with it and what they, what messages they take from it is always right. Cause it's from your perspective. So yeah, I think, I think you got it. How is it from your, I'm curious, I mean, your book tells a lot about you. I mean, you share a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me ask it this way. What was writing the book like? How did you decide to write it? And how did you decide, what was it like? I mean, it made me think of, um, I don't know, Hemingway, someone who said, writing is easy. I just hit my typewriter and bleed. Yeah. Yeah. So raw. (sighs) Yeah, I think it felt, I mean, it was something that felt just urgent. You know, I was having a, I had a call with a mentor in 2016. I'd I'd hemmed and hawed about whether or not I would write a book. I wrote regularly on my own website and she said, what if someone else, what if you didn't write this book or what if someone else wrote this book? And I said, I'd die, you know, and (laughs) Um, I think that I had so many different ideas that were going, so many things intersected for me. I'd done a lot of research. I'd started working with individuals and with groups, um, that didn't feel that felt like they needed something outside of the existing system. And I started to weave these different, you know, I think like ideas together. And it was this, this one that like, there is, you know, that, that, that alcohol is kind of the new cigarette, that there is an industry called big alcohol that we don't acknowledge um, that wants us to be sick and that profits off our sickness. And for instance, I think if, you know, the the alcohol industry tells us to drink responsibly, if, you know, by Gene Kilburn's estimate, if we drank responsibly, uh, if everyone drank responsibly, the alcohol industry would lose about 80% of its profits. Um, So you have this large, sinister industry that is profiting off of our death and our destruction and our sickness with almost zero liability. 
And I think that that was big. And then you also have individuals who are willing to take the hit alcoholics and say, it's not the booze, it's me. I'm the sick one. I'm the defective that really like give this story an idea that like it's normal to consume alcohol the way that we do in this country and across the globe, honestly. And then there was also this like this, you know, fourth wave feminism that came about in the 2000, you know, response to the 2016 United States presidential elections. And you saw all of this anger at all of these systems and then this like increasing promotion of alcohol within these systems um and then you also saw you know like this questioning of like what like patriarchy is and and what late stage capitalism does to us and then you have no questioning of the existing treatment systems that are in place to help us recover from alcohol and so and i could go on and on and on but really there was just this like these were all almost separate themes. I would write about how bad alcohol was, or I would write about how labeling is really stigmatizing and furthers our sickness. Or I would write about how um, we perhaps need to not check our egos at the door. If we've always been told to check our egos at the door, like if we're feminine um, or for any other intersection of oppressed identity. And these were separate things. And then I think the book was just this urgent, this urgency to like figure out how do I map this into a large scale argument that convinces people alcohol is, is crap, uh, convinces people that recovery is really like freedom and sobriety is really an enviable state. And, and also, by the way, lets them know, you know, about all these systems in place that want to keep them sick. Um, so yeah, it was, it was hard. (laughs) It sounds like, I mean, the book, after I finished it, I went back to go to the beginning again. And I see that you really laid out what, what everything to come. But when I first, at the, when I first came to the beginning, I was like, this is a lot of stuff. I don't think, uh, I think she's just kind of talking about some things. And then, and maybe some people heard what you just said and thought, well, she's kind of stretching there a bit, but it's the opposite. It's uh, I mean, I feel like there's this voyage that you've gone through. I mean, there was the, the descent into alcohol or, or um, not descent. Cause it's, it was sure, um, but it is a descent. It's a it's a descent. Addiction is a descending state, right? It's it's not a high state. <laughs> well, I also feel like there was like um, uh, I don't know how to put it. Like it wasn't like um, you talk about some people have like their their first drink and they really love it, or they like they, yeah. they knew were addicted right then. But for you, it was um, you had your personal story that wasn't. It wasn't like uh, how do I put. I don't know how to put it. It felt like it wasn't like Like alcohol wasn't the star of my story. My trauma was the star of my story. You know, I think that that was the difference. Like there's like Carolyn Knapp wrote this beautiful book called, you know, alcohol love story. And it was, it was about the alcohol and it was about her as well. And I think for me, what I really tried not to do was to say, because it wasn't, I didn't have that like explosion moment where I had my first drink. And then I was like, this is the thing I have always been looking for. Um, I was just always looking for escape. I was just always looking to numb out and to like not be present with my life because of so many different factors. And I think that I didn't want alcohol to star as the role of, as like the singular thing. I really wanted it to be complex it for it for it to be within the culture that I existed in and all the messaging I got plus all of the the you know the ways that we're encouraged not to heal ourselves and to be out of power you know so so yeah it was I think like I was born and you know and like most humans in our current society and then descent you know um because because of the the context we exist in yeah you you talked about how I mean at one point you described it as like the best thing that ever happened to you or something like that it was. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to call that a descent. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And also there's, there's, yeah, everything going on around you. There wasn't like you were, um, I think today in today's world, if someone st- decides to start smoking cigarettes, they think, oh, I'm risking getting addicted and I hope I don't. And they probably think they won't. And next thing you know, they are. Sure. Yeah. And that didn't sound like your story because it, it sounded healthy. It sounded like, of course, like, get together and, and all the t-shirts and the stuff for, for like, um, yeah. Rose mom or something. I forget like the, and, and, and things for babies, singlets. Yeah. And so then there's this process of 
opening your eyes, seeing what's going on, that like there's layers and layers and layers of finding what's going on. And I, I feel like I would guess that writing the book took a huge bunch of stuff that you knew was connected, but not sure how. But you, a book is linear in the sense of, you know, most people don't jump around the book. Yeah. And how do you put it all together into something that compels people to keep going chapter after chapter? <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was like almost every, certainly every chapter, certainly every paragraph, almost every sentence had a parallel to, I, I don't know if this is too big of a leap for you, but to me, fossil fuels and uh, pollution is something that it, it's sadly, it hurts others, but not myself so much, but it does hurt myself too. Mm. And it's something that, that, I mean, you read the paper in the paper, they'll say like America's addicted to fossil fuels and stuff. But I think they're using that analog analogously. But I, I really think, like, I talk a lot about how it's an addiction. And I was thinking, I should just take this book and, like, you know, everywhere, and it's not everywhere it says alcohol, just change it to pollution, but something like a very similar structure. But then I kept thinking, the way you write and the way you, I don't know how you live, but if it's like how you write, it's different than me. And so I, I couldn't quite do just like that. But I think your message is really, Power. I mean, I think there's a lot, there's a lot of addiction out there, and a lot of people who don't realize that they're addicted because there's. A lot, I think there's more things than just alcohol that are treated like alcohol. Yeah, I would agree. And the way that this mix of like not blame and yet, if you take responsibility, there's that's really difficult to deal with to handle. Like, how do you talk to people about say that what they're doing may be harming people? But if you make them feel guilty, then they push back. Well, I don't think you want people to feel guilty as guilt is not like any sort of productive feeling whatsoever. It just, right. it just stops people from being able to function. And you know that within, you know, within addiction recovery specific to alcohol, you're working with individuals that like have a tremendous amount of guilt already and shame. They're coming to the table with that. And what you're trying to do is, and that's, that's stopping them from being able to address um, you know, in a healthy way, like their, you know, their trauma or their underlying issues or their habits. And I think, so no, you don't, it's not, it's a punitive system isn't, d doesn't create a better world, you know? And so, yeah, I think that I don't, it's, it's, it is a hard leap. I think, um, you know, so I think addictions are widespread. I think our society is built off of addictions. I think, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I yes. think late stage capitalism is, a system of addiction, right? Um, we are, you know, and when you think of what addiction is, I mean, there's like the physiological processes, right? So specific to alcohol or opioids, or, you know, these all run with like, there's a physiological component, there's a biological component, you drink, you take any sort of psychoactive substance over and over and over, um, your, you know, your brain changes, your brain chemistry changes, um, you, you know, essentially like uh, adapt or form a dependence and, there's all sorts of things that are um, that I'm not going to get into, but there is a physiological, biological process that defines uh, somebody that's, you know, at end stage addiction, that's on the, you know, that's in severe uh, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder. And then you can see like these same brain changes within, you know, specific like eating disorders or gambling or even tech use, gaming, pornography, like the circuitry of ourselves is disrupted. So I think like we're trying to like get into that discussion, you know, and really like define dependence versus addiction, you know, like I think tabling that and that aside, if you just look specifically at what addiction is, right. And a, like a good working de a definition of addiction is anything that we do to seek relief um, that we do habitually that brings relief, but that brings long-term consequences and that we can't, um, and that like long-term consequences that we can't extract ourselves from, right? That we can't stop doing it, even though we know it's, this is, this is giving me a short-term escape. This is going to cause long-term harm, you know, and we want to quit and we can't quit. You know, those are like the typical things that would describe what an addiction is. So something you do habitually that brings you immediate relief that, you know, doesn't feel good in the long run or that you want to stop doing that you can't stop doing that's going to cause you harm in the future. And I think, sure. Yeah. Fossil fuels would fit within that, you know, like, and I think like when we look at, uh, you know, our, our 
the society around us and all of the things that individual, like all of us, because we live in this system are, we are almost trained to look to like, to, to not be with reality and not confront reality and to look for the cheap thrill and the escape. And therefore we ignore you know, to our collect, we ignore the long-term consequences of, of our behavior, which end in what climate disaster, um, you know, or end in, you know, I mean, you can look even to like the self-help industry as like a, an addiction cycle, uh-huh. like this need to change ourselves immediately instead of just confronting what's actually there and being in reality and responding to reality um, and being uncomfortable and making changes that we have to make, you know, in order to impact, you know, future generations and our current state of living. So I think we live in a very addicted society. I think no one knows how to learn, like no one can be with themselves. We're looking externally for ways to make ourselves feel better. And we are absolutely, you know, like as a collective, unable to look at the long-term consequences of what this like immediate gratification brings us. Um, I think it's very similar. Yeah, I feel like if the big corporations that everyone knows the names of have figured out what to do to make someone want to crave something, that the satisfaction of it recreates more craving. And it's it's like they can push our buttons more effectively than if we don't know what to do, how to not let those buttons get pressed. You know, they know how to get you to like, oh, I'm just going to check my, my my social media for a second. And they know how to get you to want to do that. And then once you're on there, then they know how to keep you going for longer and longer and longer and longer. For sure. They they are addiction specialists. Yeah. They know exactly how to get someone addicted. I was just reading, um, I'm almost through Gabor Monte's new book, The Myth of Normal, which argues essentially this, like this, you know, society is sick. We all live within, within a sick society. <laughs> you know, we're all addicted. Um, But he was, he had this one comment about the kind of marketing, I think it's called like neuromarketing. I'll have to relook at it, but just like, of course, like there are, you know, the behemoths that know exactly how to get us chasing a feeling and wanting to change our existing state um, with instant gratification, you know, and like, you can look at this, like in that, like, if you just look at like the anti-aging industry or beauty culture, Mm -hmm. like running after like I just read this morning, like Travis Barker, and I can't remember what band he was in. Um, he was Blink One Eighty. Who even cares? But like this, like old rocker guy just created the CBD skincare line, and if like that isn't like the sign of our times, of mm-hmm. like uh, a, you know, like just like everyone has a skincare line that's meant to like you know stop us from facing you know our our aging faces. It's just like ultimate distraction from being with, you know, what's in front of us. Yeah. It's like they find all the different anxieties that we can have and then amp them up so that we yeah. want to, uh, what's the word repress, not repress, like somehow not face them. Well, yeah, because, in, and that's like the whole gist of it, right? Because like, if we all were to actually face reality, you know, the system would not stand. All right. So let's look at the facing reality because I think most people feel like they see the withdrawal and they can imagine intellectually past the withdrawal, but that's not really imaginable. And I think your experience was, I mean, you had some very colorful descriptions of how it feels when, you know, you want to drink and you just want the <laughs> glass of wine and you don't have a glass of wine yeah. and you're like, it feels that way. And it is that way. Yeah. And, and now I can't remember offhand some of the descriptions, but they were really colorful. And, but also the overall process, I think you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you loved the process of getting out of it. Like, yes, there was difficulties, but the reawakening was like, um, I don't know how to describe it. It almost sounds like, uh, like awakening in in Buddhism or something like that. Well, yeah, I think like you went at Tempest, we came up with this framework. My friends, the religious came up with this framework that essentially looks at the six steps of facing addiction and the first is is ether like you're just out there you have no idea anything's wrong completely unaware you you know like let's just say you're you know you're drinking your face off but you're not you don't have a problem you know like you're total denial total lack of awareness and then there's inkling which is the next step which is 
you start to get this like these little hits and for me that started happening in like 2012 I think like I went on a meditation retreat and I was like oh you know like oh this is dysfunctional oh you know like this is there's something maybe wrong here you know and in mid like summer 2012 I went on another vacation and told my friend like hey if I'm still drinking like this have an intervention you know like get all the friends together and like stop me and but still that not necessarily fully aware. And then the, after inkling comes reckoning and that's just full awareness. Um, wait, is reckoning? It's been a long time since I looked at this inkling. I think it was three reckoning. in the book. So it's like doubled. What's that? I think more detail. Right. In the book, I think you said there are three stages. Well, no, this is something that we did. It, it Like it's not written about in the book, but then essentially there's like, there's, then there's the, there's the like actual, like, part where you realize this is a problem and you start to have an awareness around it. And that the reason that people don't, the reason people don't necessarily go through that process is because of how much we fear discomfort and how much we're told sitting with our discomfort, facing the truth, um, being on the spot, being nailed. Like no one likes that. I don't like that still. You know, I think like I recently went through some really like undesirable changes in my life. And no matter how much I know from my past history, being nailed, having the worst thing happen, having the thing you absolutely don't want to have happen is like, is really juicy. It's really workable. It's going to expand you. It's going to give you more perspective. It's going to open up your life. It's going to bring all these gifts. It doesn't even matter because we don't like it. And we are so conditioned to not do things that feel uncomfortable. We medicate our feelings with so many different things. Um, We believe it is wrong to feel bad. We believe it's wrong to feel boredom. We believe it's wrong to like, to really, really like be in the only spot that we have, you know, like that we know from thousands and thousands of years of, of people reporting back that like that space, like confronting our suffering and working with our suffering is really where so much comes from. That's where our lives, that's like where the meaning of our lives comes from is sitting in the space of suffering, our ability to suffer. Um, we didn't, but we deny it. So we deny, you know, two things we deny, we deny the, the unwanted, which means we also deny the experiences we really want and long for. It feels like if you're invited to a party and they're like, oh, we got this new rosé in from wherever. And the alter- and someone says, okay, you got that. That's option A. And option B is, or you start pulling at this thread that's going to lead to being more and more aware of your suffering. I think most people are going to go for the, I mean, the, the, the default is let's go for the rosé. I mean. Well, sure. Uh, everyone's going to choose. I'll do it later. You know, I mean, yeah. everyone's going to choose the immediate, everyone is going to choose the thing, not everyone, but, but immediate gratification is, is very, um, alluring you know and I think that that's the thing I I wrote a I wrote a post a while ago that was just um you know people ask me you know all the time like how do you quit drinking and I I said like there's so many different things but one of the things is you learn to burn you learn to like sit in that spot where the where it's hot and where there's fire in you know in yogic traditions called tapas like you you sit in the heat and the heat transforms you. And I think that like so many of us get to that place where it's just hot and we just say, no, I'm not going there, you know? And so we just, and, and, but that's like the, that's the good door. That's the door that gives you everything, you know? It's a long journey. I mean, it sounds, it's a long journey with suffering in it that you have to sit with, but it's deeply rewarding if I, I mean. Yeah. Or the other journey is suffering that you're constantly, I mean, you're, you're suffering either way, you know? (laughs) Yeah. One way you're aware of it and then you can handle it. The other way you're, you're suppressing it and constantly suppressing it. And, and the cycle. Living, yeah. yeah. It's like Marianne Williamson put it like the dull aching pain, you know, versus like the searing, you know, the dull aching pain of, of constantly not looking at the things that we know we need to look at. Um, yeah. The challenge of, if you see someone who is in that situation. I mean, to some extent we all are, but say like someone's chemically addicted to something or someone addicted to some drug or nicotine. And uh, how do you, do you, do you approach them if, 
like if you found a friend of yours was on something and you didn't realize it, and then you found out, would you approach them? I mean, you talked about times when people gave you advice. So, okay, there's wrong ways to, there's, there's definitely counterproductive ways that I'm sure you don't approach them with. Like, here's some advice you should do X or, uh, but do you approach it? Do you have to wait for them to come to you or do you hint at things or how do you, or just write a book and put it out there? I mean, there's, um, I mean, I'm actually like sitting here with a very good workbook about this entire thing. Um, the beyond addiction workbook for family and friends. Uh, but the, so this is written, this is actually written by Terry Wilkins, who's incredible, but, um, it's a great resource for that specific thing. But I think there's two different things, right? Like the one is like, we live in a society where we're constantly running around very, very focused on what everyone else is doing and completely, Mm -hmm. um, uh, believing we can figure out for everyone else what their problems are. And, and almost like to the detriment of actually like being in our own lives and working with what we actually have control over, which is ourselves and our own choices. And so I think the first answer to that is that I think that our incessant need to point out what everyone else is doing very, very wrong is also part of our unwillingness to be with ourselves and it's like there's this like saying you know like um from uh shanti deva's book um like the way of the bodhisattva that like oftentimes we're just trying to like cover the world in leather so it conforms to what we think it should be instead of like putting leather on our own feet um i'm gonna shut my window real quick because the garbage truck coming Uh so i think that I mean, I I think that oftentimes like that is an interesting question to ask is like how much we're focused on other people doing what they need to do. And I have friends like all the time that I talk through with this. And a lot of the time, you know, there's obviously concern for this other person, but really when you get down to it, it's, but I don't think they should be doing this, you know? And -hmm. like a lot of times it's not even that this person is like in a bad way or really bad off or you know, it's just that someone else thinks they should be doing what they're doing. And so, which comes from like part of what makes our society sick, right? Which is like agency does not really exist. Like we're not really allowed to be completely addicted to drugs if we want to be, you know, which is like why we don't have safe injection sites. Like we're not really allowed to, you know, be fat. We're not allowed to do like all sorts of things to our own bodies, and have complete agency over the choices that we make as, you know, as long as they're just hurting ourselves, like we all, you know, so I think there's, there's that piece. And I think that's a really interesting and important piece that we all individually need to work with, which is like allowing people to make choices for themselves. And I think the basis of like a healthy addiction recovery is agency is working with individuals so that they feel that they have control. Cause part of what makes people sick is this lack of control and this lack of mm-hmm. agency in their own lives. And then I think there's also the other side of this, which is, yeah, I did mention in my book that like there were ways that people approached me that were not helpful, that ruined our relationships. Um, But I think that if you are impacted by somebody's or you care about somebody, I think that it's a very, very delicate dance. And I think it requires the individual to do their own work. Right. With like, I think that there are ways and there's, like I said, this workbook that Carrie wrote um, with a few of her colleagues. Um, But a lot of that workbook is is like using the other person's addiction to not, you know, to support them, but also to figure out how to do your own work On, on yourself, on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. When you said for them to have that sense of control of agency. How do you, you said, I think you let them have that. Can you clarify that? Because I think people who are addicted tend to say, there's nothing I can do. Certainly in, in pollution, people say, what I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference. Well, but I think that that's false, right? And I mean, we're a cellular body, right? If we're just talking about, if we're just talking about the earth, if everyone today, you know, like change their behaviors and habits, the entire world, you know, regardless of what any politician does or any corporation does would change. And I think that there is this passivity because we have handed over our power to hierarchies and to, um, we, we wait for, you know, we think we, we have like almost given up and thrown in the towel. 
because we think that our choices don't matter when only our choice it's when it's only our choices that matters when it's only like the cellular body right that that actually and and how that functions matters and so i think that that is less of like we don't i mean it's a product of agency but i think it's also just this shared belief system of of disempowerment of like yeah yeah but we do. Yeah, there's a lot of reinforcement for that. Because if everyone feels what I do doesn't matter, then everyone else can feel like, well, what I do doesn't matter also. And so they can all together feel like, well, someone else's should do it. But it does matter, right? And it's a culture that's stable. Yeah. Unfortunately, heading toward a cliff. Yeah. I mean, we're on the cliff. You know, if you're in Pakistan, you're on the other side of the cliff. You're off the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. People keep saying if, you know, what people act when it hits them. And I'm like... <laughs> How can you disconnect with people so much? People will only react. I mean, like that is like kind of, but it is hitting us. Um, But I do think it goes back to this, this sense of, you know, when I really believed what I wrote in the last chapter of my book, um, you know, which was simply about how I I really see addiction as this like intersecting um, this, this very like this like broad web of, you know, when you, when you look at individual development, like there's a framework that is proposed by Kim Wilber that talks about you know, egocentricity, ethnocentricity, and then world centricity. And these are like stages of development and at the level of addiction, at the level of like being inactive addiction, they're very egocentric. And this isn't good or bad. It just means you're fully focused on your own experience. You are unable to really see beyond yourself. And then you have this experience of recovery and as you grow, right, is not just wake up, but as you grow up and develop and mature, um, you move into ethnocentricity, which is you're able to understand and take the perspectives of people that have a sh- that you think are your people, right, like your, your clan. Um, and that could be people in recovery or, but ethnocentricity is healthier than egocentricity or it's more developed than, than, than egocentricity. But beyond that is world centricity and world centricity is I can take, I know that person over there is my sibling. I know that we share this organism. I know that our dependence, that we're dependent on each other. I know we're part of the same family and we disagree. And I still can hear that person. I can I can work with that person. And so the way that Ken Wilber describes it really is this. Um, there's very few people that are world centric. Most people are, you know, egocentric or or ethnocentric. And there's very few people that are able to go above and to still like understand their like we like we're headed towards a cliff. And we're dry and the car's like, you know, the the foot's all the way down on the gas pedal because we're yelling at each other. And I think that there's really this, like, will we be able to work together as a global body, hear each other, come together? Will we grow up individually enough to be able to make that leap? Will enough of us get there in order to work together to stave off climate disaster? And I think it's it's why it's so important that we really do look at individual healing and and really across the globe make sure that every individual that needs some kind of healing you know for themselves receives it it's a tall order but and that's the people you don't like too you know what i mean like that's like those are the people we don't like it's about hoping all of us get the kind of support we need in order to be able to develop enough to be able to have hard conversations to make different choices. Yeah, I'm listening to the, the interplay between powerlessness and support, which I think is ultimately empowering. You're also making, you're reminding me of another book that made a huge impression on me. I don't know if you've read the book, Bury the Chains by Adam Hochschild, mm-hmm. which is, it's about the British abolitionists in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And I didn't know this, that according to him, that was the first group ever in history that looked, you know, they looked across an ocean and said, well, we're getting the sugar and molasses and rum and cotton, but it's produced on these plantations and and slavery had been around forever. So people just thought, well, that's the way things are. Right. But they were the first people to look across. So they looked across the ocean and said, the sweetness of the sugar is not worth it. 
but they were the first group that looked and said, we're going to work for a different group's freedom. Right. Not just our own, although I think it makes a better life to you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But that, I don't know if that would, if that's like a description of what you're talking about, of like world centricity. Yeah. Well, Yuval Harari and like other individuals have, and, and Ken Wilber and, you know, multiple people have like pointed to the fact that like within a very short period of time, slavery had existed forever. And within a very short period of time, there was across the globe, like completely, it was eradicated. Um, and that doesn't mean that there's not still instances of slavery. Yeah, it was made illegal. But go- government, right. It was made illegal. It was driven underground. So I think that there was, of course, like this leading edge of, of thinkers that changed and then the rest of society developed and followed suit. Right. And I think like, that's like a, it's, I don't know if you've looked in any work on spiral dynamics, but that's what spiral dynamics really is about. Yeah. That takes me back. I have to like search my memory for spiral dynamics because I definitely read about it. Yeah. It's like, it's the same, it's the same kind of framework. There's a really good book called Trump in a post-truth world. Um, that talks about this exact thing. Um, but it's it's that idea, right? That that will enough of us at the leading edge be able to make that leap. Um, and so that like, you know, culturally we we make that leap and make the changes that are necessary to be made. And I, you know, I think like I um I think like I don't have hope, I have faith, you know. I think like you know, Pema Chodron talks about like this idea of like hope being an ability to be with the currents. Like hope is I need this to be different for me to be okay. Right. And hope is wishing for a different future now. And I think that I am, um, I work with being uh, grateful for where we are today, for what we have today and, and not needing anything to be different for me to be okay. And also just this deep belief in humanity that that we are you know that we all are our basic nature is goodness and that we're we will be able to make the changes that need to be made in order to i just i've worked with too many people and i've seen too much individual transformation Mm. that is like that is just head scratching for me to believe anything else than we are capable um can you share a story or two of the head scratchingly much change I mean, we're just talking about people that absolutely had no desire for life, that were drinking themselves to death, that Mm. were on death's bed, that were, you know, what would be written off as lost causes, and that were able to, you know, from tremendous pain, uh, make tremendous changes within their lives. And, you know, the the best, most of my friends are in recovery from, from some substance or from behavioral addictions. And their lives are it's always really weird to know people now you know and to like and to then to hear their stories of what their lives were like um before it's tremendous so i think you know this is something that's really challenging not challenging but like intriguing i feel like a lot a lot of times people like i think you would never trade before with now this is better for everything about your life now is better than when you were drinking. And I feel like when I, and for me, living the way I do now, much more sustainably, I'm still not sustainable. No matter how much more I'm living sustainably than the average American, that's a very low bar. But it's joyful. It's wonderful. It's, it's amazing. You know, people look at me not flying and they think, oh, he's missing out on meeting the rest of the world. But I have traveled the world and I know what I, and now I wish I'd changed earlier, but I am also only eating local food. And when I go to the farmer's market in the winter and I got radishes and beets and turnips and rutabaga maybe, and I got to make it taste good. I got to learn tradition. I got to learn what people did before because they weren't just miserable all through the winter. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'm doing what's local here, but that's in a way that I hope makes sense that actually connects me with local somewhere else more than going and visiting there for a week and just like, it feels like going to the zoo to me. Right. But if I tell that to someone, they're like, yeah, right. I feel like I'm telling a heroin addict that if you actually eat healthy, exercise regularly, uh, you know, do what it takes to you know, live not addicted, they're like, are you kidding? Do you have no idea what it feels like, the euphoria, 
you know, and I, I think I, I, I would sound like a total square mm. and it would sound like totally uninteresting to them. I think it makes more sense when it comes from someone who has kicked that particular addiction. Mm. But even my mom, she was like, Josh, I know you, I, I probably asked her, like, I was like, do you believe me that I actually like this more? And she's like, I don't forget how she put it, but basically, no. She's like, I know that you don't like it as much, but I'm glad that there are people like you and Greta who are saying that it's better, mm-hmm. even though it's not, to get people to change to do something that they don't want to do. I'm like, mom, I really, <laughs> I really like this more. And it's like, how do we communicate that to someone? Uh, whether, you know, I don't think I would have believed myself earlier. I think if someone told me, instead of eating out all the time, you'll cook for yourself more. I think I'd say, well, that sucks. Yeah. I don't have time. People train their whole lives to be chefs. Of course, they're going to make better food than I would. And I don't know how to buy vegetables. It sounds like a bunch of work. Yeah. And yet, it's, your book has that in it, uh, a, and yet. And yet, yeah. It's, everything seems one way, and yet. Well, because, again, going back to Gabor's new book, you know, I think like what we're enculturated to believe is normal is not normal, right? None of this is normal. War is not normal. You know, climate, like just, just not even climate disaster, but just how we, how we care about our planet is not normal. How we talk to each other, how we're on phones all the time. You know, there's so many things that are just so absolutely abnormal, but we're conditioned into, it's normalized. We don't question it. We know it's wrong, but we don't question it. And I think that that's, you know, I think what you're saying in the similar way of like, you know, there's this normalization that alcohol brings joy and it's just the best way to connect. And it's what you do on a date and the whole, oh, like going to Italy and drinking the great wines or going to dinner. And like, there's just like all of this romance and all of this like normalization that like, this is our right. This is a good life. This is what we do. And, you know, and then you step outside of that culture and you're like, oh, there's so much more beyond what everyone, you know, it reminds me of the beginning of like Ignath Iswaran, like he translated like the Dhammapada and the Bhagavad Gita. And like at the beginning of his, those three translations, um, he wrote this thing that just stuck with me when I was first getting sober. And it was like, you know, if like, it was just about how, like, imagine this, like, you know, this bird flying in and out of like this castle and it flies out across all the lands. And it's like, he was, I think he was just, I can't remember it exactly, but he was just essentially saying just like, like, I wish I, you could see this. I wish you could see what I could see. It's fantastic. It's beyond what I imagined. And I think that most of us don't live in a world. Our worlds are not, are very small. We do not have that sense of, wow, this is possible. And I think what you're saying is like, I am withdraw. I withdrew my attention and my, I divested from, you know, these things that we think we have to do for a good life, but actually these things that, you know, made for a good life were what kept my life small. Mm-hmm. And, you know, over here, oh, the possibility of like, you know, like it's, it feels very similar of that, you know, like that, that we awakening, right. To like, what is possible? And most people don't really live in a, a world where they think anything's possible. They're just going, they've accepted what we think is normal, you know, voter fraud's normal, lying is normal, people being locked up and incarcerated is normal, you know, sending our parents to old folks homes is normal. Mm-hmm. Working 60 hour weeks is normal. We've just accepted it, but there is nothing normal about it. And I think that when we find we can step outside of the social contract and do something differently, it really, really opens up our, how big and possible like our lives are. I got to share one thing that I, that I thought was normal that I've just recently discovered is not normal. <laughs> that like I haven't gotten box cereals in a long time, but when I was a kid growing up, we'd go to the cereal aisle and, you know, okay, I want this one this, this time. And, and it seems like it's variety. And most people listening to this probably know that there's not a whole lot of variety. It's a few ingredients that kind of mixed <laughs> around in different ways and they throw sugar on it. 
we weren't allowed to get the sugar cereals, but yeah, same. So now that I avoiding packaged food, even then I would just get oats. But now that I'm, I would get steel cut oats sometimes, but they would take longer to. My mom growing up used to say they were uh, they're special because it takes longer to cook them. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm off the grid, it turns out that uh, temporarily as an experiment, I was like, well, I can't cook these. It, it, it like I don't have enough power to cook them, and so I just soaked them in water, and it worked. And it's really, it's like a really great texture and yeah. uh, flavor. Yeah. And then I was like, well, let's try it with like just the whole oats. That works too. I was like, let's try it with the wheat grains. That works too. And I, all my life, I used to wonder, how do they come up with bread? And like, it's so many steps. And I figured, okay, in a long time, they figured it out. But also, you just soak the stuff in water. And it's so much cheaper to yeah. buy bulk grains. And they're, it tastes better. It's cheaper. It's healthier. It's better in every way. Yeah. And I had no idea because to me, normal was that aisle in the supermarket. And how long has, have aisles in supermarkets been there at all? Let alone, you know, Kellogg's and Post and, and uh, um, General Mills. And it's like something better in every way is just staring me in the face. It wasn't staring me in the face because it's not easy to get that stuff. But once it revealed to me, now I'm just like, oh, Kemet, Farrell, what are those things? Yeah. Instead of thinking like, Oh, the latest trend I got to follow. It's more like, what is that? I'm curious. Yeah. How does it taste? Does rye taste? I mean, rye bread tastes different. Does rye soaked in water taste different? And I really enjoy it. It's so much fun. Oh, there was something else I was going to follow up with what you said about oh, the joy of discovery and the curiosity. But I also want to go back to the writing of the book process because it feels like there was a... I would guess it was really hard at the beginning because like, how do you, how do you begin? And then probably narrowing down as you it kind of fell into place. I, I imagine that I would guess that before you started it, you were clean and not feeling like, Oh, I might slip back in. And then I would guess that there was a second process of, I would guess that the book itself writing it was a whole new level of discovery. Yeah. And I, I think like first, um, so I don't identify as clean. It might've been the past, but clean denotes that it's dirty to be using drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, I also never really had a big, I, I've never allowed for the idea of relapse to be, um, or slips or whatever to, to like, mm-hmm. to be a thing I have to mind all the time. I'm very aware of it, but I'm also at the same time, I don't like plan my life around. I, I'm not fragile. I guess I don't treat myself as fragile in that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm careful, not fragile. Um, but I think that like writing it, you know, I was writing it while I was working. You know, I started, I got, I got the, my book deal and well, I started, I worked on the proposal. The proposal took forever. Um, it took me six months of hard work. And I did that late at night after work. You know, I was running a company at the time. I was raising, you know, I was raising money from, from venture capital firms. And then when I, when I got the book deal, it was mid 2018. And then I owed it by mid 2019 and it came out late 2019. So it was a really fast book to write. Mm-hmm. And I did that. Uh, I did that from, I would go to bed at 10 and then I'd wake up at two. And I did that. I, I mean, I spent Christmas in a hotel, locked in a room writing it. I, I wrote it, you know, <laughs> I don't even know how I did it, to be honest. Um, it was a grueling process. And no, I mean, the discovery really came in publishing. I got a lot of backlash and and I think like the discovery process has been like since published, it was not necessarily in the writing of it, though I'm sure there was, but I can't remember it. It's mostly come in how to really live when you've, when you've put yourself out into the world oh. and live with, yeah, I have 7,000, you know, I have 7,000 reviews on Amazon. Well, mm-hmm. if you're an author, I, I don't suggest ever reading them. I read them <laughs> for the first week and then I, I haven't read them since and I will never read them. So, you know, I think, I think that a lot of my growth and development came from, from after that. From after that. So people who meet you now for the first time know a lot about you and you don't know much about them. 
Well, I mean, depending, no, not everyone, you know, like, like I still am in a, I'm in a pretty, if they know who I am, sure they might, you know, there's plenty of stuff on the internet about me. It makes dating interesting, you know, but no. Are there, do you get a lot of people contacting you saying, I mean, some of the reviews, sorry if I'm telling you something you don't want to hear, but it's like they're saying like, I don't, if, if it's any, I don't, I don't. Okay. Oh. I don't want to hear anything about the reviews. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, strike that question then. <laughs> you were going to say, do I get people asking me what? Well, do people contact you directly and say like, you really helped me? Like you gave me a whole new perspective. You saved my life or anything like that. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to be able to read that. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me, can you tell me more about that? I mean, sorry if it's, I, I'm not trying to like pump you up, but like, I'm trying to write my book Yeah. and it's grueling and it's really brutal. I mean, I just sit there. There's this one section I was working on and I must've spent like a month several hours a day. And on a good day, I might write 10 words. Yeah. That sounds like a writer. It's just cause it's just, I don't know. And I couldn't do have done any different. And I just stare at my computer for like entire days. Sometimes I, I write trash, write trash. And then, so, then, then I'll have a good day and it'll just flow out. So yeah. Or like Elizabeth Gilbert said, like a good writer comes on day one and writes their heart out on day two, hates everything they wrote on day one. And on day three returns, that's a writer, you know, the returning. Yeah. Yeah. There's so it's like, I write stuff and then I'm like, Oh, I wrote so much. I don't want to get rid of all of this, but I'm like, it's gotta go. Mm. Read Annie Dillard. Um, oh God, why can't I think of the name of her book, but the, you know, that one paragraph that you love and is so good and is so precious and you want to keep it because it's your best stuff. It's like, you just end up deleting it, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it's crazy how much good stuff ends up getting deleted. <laughs> yeah. So much. Um, yeah. That I appreciate that. I, I don't know if that's helpful for listeners if they're, if they're writing, but thank you for sharing that. It's the worst. And we're on video. The <laughs> listeners can't see this, but like she's smiling. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the worst. It's awful. It's why I love it, you know? So. Well, that makes me curious. Anything coming up? Yeah, I'm working. I just turned in, I'm working on a couple of things right now, but I just turned in um, for book two, which I was already in contract for. Um, I finally was able to stitch together my argument for it, which was, which took like two years. So I turned in two pages, <laughs> um, <laughs> like, which is an outlet and an outline. Um, but I feel really excited about it and good about it. So, yeah. And then I'm working on some other stuff. Um, but yeah. Well, it wasn't intentional to close that, but that, that feels like a nice place to end. It was like, okay, there's something coming. It was like a nice <laughs> little cliffhanger for the listeners. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, actually, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's to bring up before closing? No, it's, I mean, it's a great conversation. I appreciate it. Well, Hollywood Echo, thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.